Who needs coronary angiography? The prognosis for patients without a hospital cardiac arrest remains poor. Could that have induced bias or influenced treatment? There's not a lot of silver bullets in critical care. This works against our bedside bias. We're ER docs and intensivists. We want to intervene. I'm a little confused by that. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So happy that you have joined us for yet another CCPEM podcast. We're looking forward to a topic this month and for this podcast, it's here in September. Fall is getting closer here in North America, in the East Coast here. The temperature in the mornings have just a hint of crisp cool weather as we head into the hospital here, I think, for John and myself. Before jumping into our educational topic this month, let me bring in the folks you know so well here on CCPEM. I'm going to start in the South, in New Orleans. Dr. W, how goes things in New Orleans? So thank you, Mike. We just survived yet another hurricane, Hurricane Ida. And the only thing that was really different is that we had a hurricane amidst COVID, this pandemic. So we're petrified about what's going to happen over the next two weeks to see as people were forced to evacuate together, how those people will fare in regards to COVID and whether our numbers won't spike again. We finally had some numbers trailing down for the last 10 days, but we're fearful that it's going to go back up. So we're not pleased about what's going to happen in the near future. Very, very understandable. And for those of you listening, what you can't see is we're here on video recording this podcast. And it's we're so thankful to see that Dr. W has electricity. He is able to resume at work and that the hospital continues to stand and has weathered that storm well. And hopefully we continue to think about all of your colleagues, all of your patients and the citizens in Louisiana and New Orleans as they're rebuilding back from Ida. Well, all right, well, let's head west. Dr. Rodriguez, what's going on out west? Yeah, no hurricanes out here, but we are in wildfire season. So there have been a few fires surrounding the Bay Area. And with it, that worsening air that we had to deal with on top of COVID cases. But we're otherwise doing well, but thinking about Peter and his group out there, as well as people in New Jersey and New York that had those floods. Hope y'all weren't as affected by that. Great point, Rob. Thanks for saying that as well to our colleagues in the Northeast. All right. Well, let's come back all the way across the country from California to Philadelphia. Dr. Greenwood, how are you here in this mid-September month? Mike, I have to say I'm doing pretty good, all things considered. I'm amazed. I get to work with superheroes like some of these guys. You got Rob out West fighting forest fires. Peter's handling the end of the world. And in New Jersey, we actually had some tornadoes, which was wild. Listen, I live in the Northeast because I know the weather's relatively predictable. We can get a little snow, but this like natural disaster thing is a little bit nuts. The flooding, the weather did expose some faults in our city design, but fortunately not too many people were hurt and it was just some property damage. So we're pretty lucky. 
So we have focused this introduction on some natural disasters for sure. As Peter mentioned, all layered in on a pandemic that we are continuing to fight on the front lines day in and day out. And we just want to take a moment to thank all of you for the continued courageousness that you are displaying day in and day out. And I think it goes without saying all of us across this country and many places across the world are dealing with significant staffing shortages that further complicates compounds the ongoing COVID pandemic and all of what we are dealing with across the hospital, in the ICU, and in the emergency department. So that courage that you demonstrate day in, day out, showing up for your shifts, we feel is nothing short of inspirational. So thank you for all that you are doing. Well, let's turn our attention now to education. And in terms of critical care, emergency medicine, and resuscitation, there perhaps is no other state that personifies resuscitation across all of our spectrums than taking care of the cardiac arrest patient or the patient who has ROSC from cardiac arrest. And we've talked in prior podcasts about numerous aspects of post-cardiac arrest care and how thinking about them in a protocolized approach of focusing on oxygenation, ventilation, the right mean arterial blood pressure, Perhaps Institution of Targeted Temperature Management will refer you back to our TTM2 recent discussion. But another critical aspect of post-cardiac arrest care is who needs coronary angiography? Who should we be sending to immediate coronary angiography shortly after obtaining return of spontaneous circulation? And to that end, there is an article, a study that was just published online within the past two weeks in the New England Journal of Medicine that helps to provide some information specifically on that question. In fact, that article was titled Angiography After Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest Without ST-Segment Elevation. So Dr. Greenwood, take us through, set us up for this particular study. What information did they take into account? What's the current state of literature? And then where did they went ahead with this particular study? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. So there have been a number of post-cardiac arrest management research studies and trials that have been published over the past few years. So this is great to see this group tackle a little bit of a different angle. So despite advances in resuscitation, we all know that unfortunately the prognosis for patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest remains poor. And even in those patients who basically achieve ROSC, the mortality still is almost 70%. And there's a lot of reasons for that, whether it's respiratory or another cause, it's sometimes unclear if it's a cardiac cause, but acute coronary syndrome accounts for up to 60% in those with a suspected cardiac etiology for their arrest. And that can be something like an initial presenting rhythm of VT or VF or potentially even post-arrest EKG findings. In patients with an early MI, early revascularization may preserve ventricular function and prevent downstream effects such as progressive heart failure or fatal arrhythmias. So this is really important. So the benefits of immediate catheterization and revascularization have been demonstrated for patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and a STEMI. So this is with a coronary occlusion on their post-resuscitation EKG. Unfortunately, this is a smaller cohort of the overall patients I think that we all see with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And so cardiac angiography isn't without procedural risks, right? In addition, it may delay some 
pretty critical interventions that can identify the real cause of the patient's arrest. And so as we're trying to get to that point where we're making early and effective interventions during critical illness, this is a really important time and vulnerable time for the patient. A majority of patients with ROS from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest have a non-diagnostic EKG without evidence of ST segment elevation, which would trigger a cath lab activation. The COAC trial evaluated a strategy of immediate catheterization versus delayed catheterization in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest without ST segment elevation and found no benefit to immediate catheterization. However, the COAC trial enrolled only patients with a shockable rhythm and had an overall low incidence of acute coronary thrombus at the time of catheterization. So evidence regarding the timing of cardiac cath in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients without ST elevation for both shockable and non-shockable rhythms is still pretty limited. So this will be an important trial to add to our armamentarium of evidence to make decisions about how to manage these really sick patients. Hey, Rob, why don't you walk us through at least the study, uh, the objective, and how it was set up? Yeah, thanks, John. So their objective was to determine whether out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients with ROSC, but without ST segment elevation, benefit from immediate coronary angiography for treating or ruling out acute coronary events. So again, it's looking at that group who gets ROSC, but does not have STEMI and trying to find out whether immediate coronary angiography is beneficial for them. And this was an investigator-initiated randomized multi-center open-label trial conducted at 31 centers in Germany and Denmark. The inclusions were patients had to be at least 30 years of age. They had to be resuscitated from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with that OCA out-of-hospital cardiac arrest being thought to be possibly of cardiac origin. They didn't distinguish between shockable and non-shockable rhythms, so you could have either. In terms of exclusions, they excluded STEMI patients. They excluded patients who had severe hemodynamic or electrical instability. In other words, that patient who's kind of going in and out of V-fib. They excluded patients who were thought to have a non-cardiac cause of their out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. They excluded in-hospital cardiac arrest patients. And then finally, they excluded pregnant patients. In terms of the randomization, they randomized patients one-to-one to either immediate coronary angiography or delayed coronary angiography. And I'm going to define those right now. These immediate coronary angiography meant transfer to the cath lab as soon as possible, often directly from the ED, basically. Delayed coronary angiography meant that they were first transferred to the ICU instead of the cath lab for further treatment and evaluation and evaluation of possible etiologies of their out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. They could proceed to the cath lab after a minimum delay of 24 hours, basically a day, depending on the results of further testing and treatment. And cath within 24 hours in this group, in this delayed group, was permitted for when they saw substantial rises in troponin, when they saw ongoing electrical instability, patients who were in cardiogenic shock, and new ST segment elevation. So in other words, patients that 
They wanted a minimum delay of 24 hours with these exceptions. These patients that were showing signs of a true infarct or were in cardiogenic shock or had new ST segment elevation, those could go to the cath lab within 24 hours. Revascularization was attempted in both groups if at least one major coronary artery had disease and was deemed clinically relevant by the operator. Sort of a standard revascularization technique. Their primary outcome was pretty basic, the standard primary outcome in these types of trials, which was 30-day all-cause mortality. That was their primary outcome. In terms of secondary outcomes, they also had a number of those, which are also pretty conventional. MI at 30 days was one. Severe neurological deficit at 30 days was another. ICU length of stay. Rehospitalization within 30 days for congestive heart failure moderate or severe bleeding, stroke, acute kidney injury leading to renal replacement therapy. So they had basically seven secondary outcomes. They also stratified patients according to pre-specified groups in their analyses. They compared groups greater than 65 years and less than 65 years. They also stratified according to whether they had targeted temperature management, yes or no. They stratified according to shockable versus non-shockable rhythms. And then finally, the time from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest to ROSC. Less than 15 minutes versus greater than 15 minutes. So again, they looked at a number of secondary outcomes, and they had basically four substratifications for their analysis. So a lot to hear there. Why don't we move on to Peter? What did they find in this study? Yeah, some pretty interesting results here, Rob. So there were a total of 558 patients that were eligible for randomization. Of those, 554 of those patients were ultimately included in the trial. Immediate coronary angiography was performed in 281 patients. The delayed coronary angiography group had 273 patients in it. Our patient characteristics were actually very well balanced between the two groups. The median age was 70 years. 30% of those patients were female. The median time from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest to ROSC was 15 minutes. So that's good time. And then 56% of the patients had a shockable rhythm. So now let's talk about some interventions. In the immediate coronary angiography group, they had that done in 96% of the patients in that cohort. The median time from their arrest to cath was 2.9 hours. So we're getting into the ED, mobilizing the cath team, and then having cath done in 2.9 hours. So that's pretty strong there. The prevalence of coronary artery disease was 61% in that group. One or more coronary lesions were considered responsible lesions for the event in 38%. Revascularization occurred in 40%. And then 78% of those patients received targeted temperature management. Now that's our immediate group. Now, if we look at the delayed coronary angiography group, this was performed in 62% of those patients. The median time from arrest to cardiac cath 
was 46.9 hours. So a big disparity between the immediate group, 2.9 hours, and the delay group, 46.9 hours. The prevalence of coronary artery disease in this group was 72%, so higher than the previous group by about 11%. One or more coronary lesions were considered the responsible of the culprit lesion in 40% of those patients compared to 38% in the immediate group. And then revascularization in the delay group is 43% compared to 40% in the immediate group. And 79% received targeted temperature management, just one percentage point higher than the immediate group. So pretty well matched, except for what we're looking for in the time for cath. So let's look at primary outcome, which was, if you remember, 30-day all-cause mortality. In the immediate coronary angiography group, this was 54%. And that's in comparison to the delayed group, delayed coronary angiography of 46%. So there's a reduction there. The hazard ratio was 1.28. 95% confidence interval was 1 to 1.63 with a P of 0.06. So that's our primary outcomes. We look at the secondary outcomes. There was no difference in MI at 30 days out. There was no difference in severe neurological deficit at 30 days out. The ICU length of stay was no different. Rehospitalization for congestive heart failure at 30 days was not different, nor was the need for renal replacement therapy and dialysis for those folks. There was no difference in stroke, and there is no difference in bleeding. A composite outcome of all-cause mortality or severe neurological deficit actually favored the delayed coronary angiography group. And so those are your results. And so it opens up as to what, in fact, were the limitations of this study. And we'll go back to Dr. Winters for that. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Rob and John, for outstanding data information and discussion. I think this is an important study. This adds to our knowledge regarding who should we send for coronary angiography and perhaps when should we send them. And just to compare this study to the COAC study, COAC trial that John alluded to that was published, I want to say at the end of 2018, maybe end of 2019, in terms of looking at shockable rhythms, really didn't find a significant difference in those NSTEMI or non-diagnostic EKG patients headed off to cath or immediate cath. But recall that the acute thrombus was only in about 3 to 5% of those patients. In this study, we have a much higher prevalence of acute thrombus. Many more of them got PCI or intervention than what happened in the COAC trial. And in this particular trial, they included both shockable and non-shockable rhythms. And so ultimately, as you alluded to, Peter, no difference in 30-day all-cause mortality. And just to contrast that with COACT, they were looking at 90-day all-cause mortality. So certainly with any trial that we've reviewed here, and probably at forever, there are some limitations to the study. It was open label, so not surprisingly, the clinical team taking care of these patients were aware of their treatment allocation. Could that have induced bias or influenced treatment? Perhaps. In addition, this is really solely focusing on out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in the non-STEMI patient. STEMI patients weren't included. Those that were in hospital cardiac arrest, could the outcome be different? 
in getting those patients to immediate cath? Not sure, wasn't investigated. And then they also excluded those that remained electrically or hemodynamically unstable. And one of the more granular details in terms of the limitations is that when you look at patients that were randomized to delayed coronary angiography, and Rob reviewed those type of patients that could go within that 24-hour initial time frame, about 22 of these patients, or actually a total, quite honestly, of 46 patients got a cath within 24 hours. So there was some protocol violation in a percentage of those, and of the 46 that in the delayed group that got cath within 24 hours, 22 of those actually turned out to be protocol violations. So there are some numbers buried within there that may introduce some limitations on the overall study findings. But what the authors conclude as a result of this Tomahawk trial is that in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients where we get ROSC, but in that post-ROSC EKG, there's no evidence of ST segment elevation. There was not a benefit in 30-day all-cause mortality in sending folks directly to the cath lab versus getting them admitted to the ICU, continuing to provide critical care, and then making a determination of who really needs coronary angiography during that hospital stay. So, John, I'm going to go to you first. What did I miss there? Did the authors get the conclusion right? How does this inform your clinical practice? Yeah, Mike. So I think overall, this does inform our practice a little bit. I think that for patients without clear EKG changes or with relative hemodynamic stability, it seems reasonable to start treating patients in the ICU to make sure that we're doing all the other important things right first. And I think this is where coordination of care is really important. And we're recognizing that there's not a lot of silver bullets in critical care unless the right disease is identified right away. So doing all the little things right, crossing our T's, dotting our I's, making sure the patient's on lung protective ventilation, that they're receiving um, targeted temperature management, which we still do. And I still believe in, I'm not a complete nihilist just yet potentially early antibiotic therapy in the post-arrest period, make sure we're titrating down the FiO2. All of those little things probably add up to the likelihood of a better outcome as opposed to taking the time for one singular intervention. And you know, our emergency physicians, our critical care physicians are very comprehensive in their care rather than necessarily being focused on one specific task. So perhaps it makes more sense for certain patients and maybe these patients in this trial to start in the ICU. Outstanding points, John. Peter, I'm going to slide over to you for your interpretation. How does it inform your practice? Is there anything we've missed thus far in analyzing this study? Yeah, there's one piece that I have a problem with. And so I've looked at vasopressor use post-MI and some data at that. And the quote on that is about 40% of those folks require vasopressors in the initial 24 hours. And this group looks like they're rock solid stable. And I guess in Europe, people don't get hypotension associated with their out of hospital cardiac arrest. So I'm a little confused by that because it's really not a fallout for them. They didn't see this hemodynamic instability because they would have excluded a lot more folks. So I have a difficult time reconciling that. But at the same point in time, I can't argue their numbers and their data looks pretty compelling. Where we struggle in emergency medicine in particular, and in critical care as well, is this works against our bedside bias. 
And there's a strong bias in emergency medicine and critical care to act. There's a strong bias that, you know, to say, look, we just need to get them to the cath lab because I know they're going to find a blockage because I think that there's a blockage there. So there's a bias on our end towards action, right? And to act with urgency, not just, you know, ride it out and see and kind of look How's this going to look tomorrow? Are they going to be sicker? Are they going to be a little bit better off? And then the cath will help them. I look at it similar to our feelings about folks that we think need urgent surgeries. And we're in the ED and in the critical care on this press. They need to go to the OR. They need to go to the OR because we're going to heal with steel. And I think with procedures, we have a bias towards that as well, because I think that there's this bias to action when, in fact, the data doesn't support it. And so it gives me time to pause. Well said. I love those points. Both of you, outstanding points. And I'm confident Dr. Rodriguez is going to add to that. Rob, <laughs> your impressions. Yeah. So I absolutely love what Peter and John said. We do have a strong bias to act, to do something. We're ER docs and intensivists. We want to intervene. So this, as Peter and John both put it, is a call to avoid that impulse to act. We also have an inherent sort of curiosity or inherent desire to know. We think of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest as, well, they must have something going on in their coronaries. And we also have this urge to get an answer with regard to the coronaries. And so what this tells me is that the answer is very commonly not a true coronary artery disease phenomenon leading to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is a big basket term. So we get all kinds of pathophysiology leading to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. We, in fact, at our shop, did a study that we published in a couple of studies in resuscitation and annals of internal medicine showing that up to 18% of our out-of-hospital cardiac arrests are related to overdose. And this is a cult overdose, not the type of scene in which EMS providers, they don't find needles, they don't get a history of overdose, that this is just an occult phenomenon. So again, I think this paper leads to a call for just kind of relaxed on these patients, they don't need to be rushed to the cath lab. If anything, there was a signal that you might think that if they enrolled another 50 or 75 patients, that difference in mortality would have been statistically significant, favoring the delayed coronary angiography group. The p-value was 0.06. So I think this really does change my practice. I'm really not going to push to send non-STEMI out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients to the cath lab. There are a lot of different reasons for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that have nothing to do with the patient's coronary arteries, and we need to focus on and treat those. Outstanding, Rob. As I predicted, great points to the discussion. So my thanks to the three of you. As always, these conversations are so, so helpful in terms of this groundbreaking or hot off the press literature, maybe not necessarily groundbreaking, but an important article that was literally just published in the last week to 10 days online in the New England Journal of Medicine. So certainly our congrats to the authors of the Tomahawk study. 
it adds to our post-cardiac arrest care of these patients. And I think the three of you said it very nicely in that we need to think about a lot of these other interventions and perhaps not pushing and rushing to get these patients off to immediate cath when there isn't a clear-cut STEMI on EKG maybe ultimately beneficial for them. For all of you listening to this, let us know if you have any questions. Shoot us an email through the website. So happy to have all of the new listeners out there joining us. The dialogue continues to be outstanding. Really appreciate the email interactions and the opportunity to chat with many of you. And it's kind of that time of year where many of us actually have to re, not necessarily recertify, but renew perhaps state licenses. We got to attest to the CME component of our state licensure. So, well, you've listened to this episode, why not earn CME? So if that's something that you're interested in, if you need those CME credits, you can certainly have that subscription through our website for the CME portion and very easy to log on and earn CME for this and actually all of our archived episodes. So gentlemen, I think that's going to bring us to a close for this month, close out September. Very much looking forward to getting back and reconnecting with you early in October for our next podcast. Wishing all of you listening to this podcast a very safe end of your September. Continue to do what you're doing on those front lines. We are inspired and cannot thank you enough for all that you're doing in this pandemic as we continue to fight on. Once again, this is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore for CCPEM. We'll look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.